name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners. Now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saints Joachim and Anne, pray for us. Mary and Joseph, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Brethren in Christ, Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. This is the lay apostolate on Meaning of Catholic. I'm Timothy Flanders. I'm joined today by Dr. Jacob Imam. Dr. Imam, it is a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show today. It's great to be with you. I'm looking forward to a good conversation. Absolutely. So if you don't know Jacob Imam, he is the executive director of New Polity. He holds a doctorate in theology from the University of Oxford. He lives in Steubenville with his wife, Alice, and sons, Blaze and Leo. So, Dr. Mom, I'm going to be talking about the 401k, Catholic retirement, the morality of all that. Before we get into that, what is new with New Polity? You've got a conference coming up soon. Yep. What's going on with uh, New Polity these days? Yeah, you know, we're really excited for, for this upcoming conference. Uh, it's beginning of May, and um, it, we're, we're really talking about the things that pertain to the evangelical councils, you know, where, whereas the church has admonished us, not just some of us, but all of us to, to adhere in some way to the councils, the recommendations of Christ in poverty, chastity, and obedience. And so we're talking about the things that pertain to that and money, sex, and power. So we're going to have a great conversation. It really is our thing, you know, mention, mentioning the lay apostolate. The thing that we laity are to do is to sanctify the temporal order. So we better have a good uh, grasp at what these things are and how they use them in a way that uh, is redeemed by Christ. So that's that's what's going on soon. Fantastic. And you, there's also the conference this Saturday on ecology, which you're hosting. Yes. Yeah. Uh, St. Basil Institute. Yes. I was honored to ask to just MC that. I'm, I'm not a formal um member of the institute but i but i find that as it pertains to things of ecology and creation more than any more than more than, of, of a focus more than anything that governs so much about the way that we order our societies what we believe this world to be um it doesn't matter where you look in the ancient creation myths whether it's over in babylon the babylonian myth the egyptian myths the greeks the romans everybody believed that this world emerged out of chaos out of competition out of a basic enmity between gods and then between god and man and so when you hear the christian creation narrative of genesis the real history how it actually happened it is just political dynamite compared to all of the narratives of the ancient world. And you know what? As our world is becoming more and more post-Christian and pagan narratives are arising again, um, you are finding the same sort of narratives about what the world is, how it came to be, emerged out of chaos, out of competition. Scarcity defines the way that we think about this world. Um, and so I just think it is so important what what those guys are doing over there of trying to bring the four, the metaphysical realities of, of creation um, to the forefront of our conversation. So I'm honored to be a part of that. Yeah, it's an exciting conference. So that, that one is online. That's $25. You can get a discount if you use the coupon code MOC from Union Catholic. Uh, but then the, the new polity conference redeeming politics is, uh, $150 in person plus room and board, right? We, 
I've, we've done a pretty good job of finding rooms uh, all throughout all throughout Steubenville for people. So that's one of the things that we really want to welcome people into our city, um, into our homes. And so most people end up not who request to have free housing end up finding it. So um, yes, it is a little pricier, but we are looking forward to a few days together with with everyone. Well, it's good to do, obviously do it in person and it's good for you y'all doing uh true hospitality i mean that's this is all of your great anti-liberalism stuff one of the <laughs> things that's just hospitality you know like paul and silas went to such and such city and they stayed with the believers for 10 days and you know so this is just normal christian stuff so i'm glad you're doing that so yeah that's true yeah, that's one of the nice benefits of being catholic yeah. you can just show up in a random town and you have a place to yeah. stay no there matter where you are in the world not just steubenville so exactly so let's talk about uh, uh, this topic, Catholic retirement. Um, if you did your homework, the homework was below, which was the de debate with uh, Mr. Trent Horn last year, last summer, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And then there was some uh, early, some later stuff that uh, came out recently. Also, the the entire article was just released online as well. Uh, Jacob and Mom and Mark Barnes that break down some of the uh deeper aspects of stock holding, stock sharing, exchange in and of itself. So we'll talk about all that. And I was, I was talking with uh, Dr. Mom privately about this as we were going up to the show. And, and one of the things I noticed was this passage. Um, this, it's in Mark and Matthew when our Lord talks about the fourth commandment to the Pharisees. And that was one of the things that really struck me is, is kind of contextualizing this whole conversation within the fourth commandment. So I just was researching some of these um aspects of this as you said this is part of the lay apostolate which is what you, you guys do at new polity but this is what i found dr mom so i want to just read these comments real quick from these authoritative sources and i want to get your comment and your thoughts on this before we get into more of the specifics but it seems that the fourth commandment bind does bind catholics to provide financial assistance to needy parents and our lord says in mark 7 well, do you make the void the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition? So he's condemning. This is the Corban passage where our Lord condemns the Pharisees because they found this loophole where they don't have to provide for their parents by offering it up in the temple somehow. Mm -hmm. um, and I checked both. The, the Roman catechism says, yes, we honor our parents by relieving them in their necessities, supplying with necessary food and clothing, according to the words of Christ, citing this passage. And then the new catechism says the same thing. The fourth commandment reminds grown children of their responsibilities toward their parents. As much as they can, they must give their material and moral support in old age and in times of illness, loneliness, and distress. And then they cite the same passage. Right. And they also cite Sirach 3, O son, help your father in his old age. And then I looked at the moral tradition, and I also talked with a moral theologian about this too. And uh, essentially, th this is a, a grave matter. Like We have to do this if... If our parents have no other means of supporting ourselves, themselves in their old age or in their need, we have to help them. But the requirements are not delineated exactly in the tradition in terms of how that actually comes about, whether that's this or that means because of those particular situations can be very varied. Uh, so I found these like, citations here from St. Francis and Prumer, which you can download these citations in the link below if you like. So. Start out, starting off the right off the bat, uh, Dr. Mon, what are your comments on this reality of the fourth commandment? 
Yeah, you know what? It, it it is so striking, and you know when we bring up the Corbin passages in particular, I I usually phrase it the same way that you just did. That they were trying to find a way of getting out. That the Pharisees and the Sadducees were trying to find a way of getting out of their obligation to take care of their parents. But there's another way that probably we could flip it and and might be like a, a quote unquote a charitable read on it that that might be true, and it's that they were truly trying to offer their sacrifices to God, that they, in their mind, as as wrong as they were, were really trying to offer something more to God. And if that meant that they were out of their obligation to their parents, it was so. But they were really focusing on that temple activity. You know, and so when we we kind of think about how much maybe we have in our own lives given up the obligation to take care of our parents, I think we could give ourselves kind of a charitable read that mirrors that. Well, they have pensions, the, the company's doing that. We, they have their 401ks, they're doing that. We're paying for, uh, you know, a nursing home. Others are doing that. And so so I, I think that just in the sense of trying to give um, as much time and uh, to the opposing argument might be helpful. I think, you know, like Christ, I'd like to destroy our modern excuses, you know, just as he did the ancient ones. Um, but but I, I think it's just so easy for us to assume uh, that there are alternatives, just as the Pharisees did too. And a lot of times even, there is not a specific intentional malice, even if it is driven by some sort of uh, more uh, profound enmity that's at the base of, of our of our actions. So I, I, I would just kind of say that as a, as a preface on the Corbin um, uh, passages. The other thing is that, that you mentioned, I think this is important too, is that while there's not the specific um, uh, charges of how exactly we're supposed to provide, it's fairly general, right? You need to provide for the necessities of your parents. You need to provide financially for your parents. It doesn't really tell us how, it just kind of tells us what, you know? But And of course, there's other ways. There's multiple ways of doing that, but some are worse than others. Some means of providing for your family could be worse than others. And I think this is really important to consider uh, a very striking passage on Pope John Paul II's um, Centesimus Annus. I believe it's from the 40th section in which he says that once we've created systems that make the 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 ability to give the gift of self to another we have alienated ourselves from neighbor that's that's in his conversation on the structures of sin things that set up that are set up in our society and and patterns that we've set up in our society in which real human interaction the giving and receiving the occasions for charity to reign are avoided precisely because we've set up certain mechanisms to take the place of them. And so I think just kind of, I, I say these two things just as, as as prefatory to this conversation that we're going to be having or now started, uh, really to, to say that while there are differences, real tectonic social differences now from then, the real subject of all of this is our souls. And are we cultivating habits of virtue or are we cultivating habits of vice? We've created systems, we always create systems, no matter what they are, good or bad, 
based upon some fundamental love that we're trying to achieve. It, love makes institutions. It's kind of like tagline that we like to say uh, here at New Polity. No matter what it is, good or bad, it is the mechanism helps you achieve the end that you're trying to get. And so the, so the, the technology or the mechanism isn't neutral. It arose out of a glorious disposition or a devastating one. And so we always need to be careful not to just say it's a technology, it's neutral. In and of itself, sure. But in its creation, that's a different matter. Yeah, that's a great point. I love what you're saying here, uh, Dr. Mon. I know that St. John Paul II says in Centesimus, I know that the, the West has, in, in the context of the fall of communism, the West has overcome poverty, but it has not overcome alienation. And that's yeah. one of the words that he's he has been using for decades since mm. he wrote Person and Act. And how um, it, it seems like to me, there's, I mean, liber liberalism creates a cultural momentum of isolation and alienation mm. so that the, all, everyone's kind of turning into an automaton. Like, and like you were just talking about in the, in the beginning, the creation narrative of, of chaos, the creation narrative of liberalism is, is like the, the Newtonian universe of the cosmos just bumping around in chaos. And there's this uh, development of, of prosperity out of that chaos. So there's like a cultural momentum of, of alienation. Whereas it seems that John Paul II would be saying the family itself should be the center of that centrifugal force yeah. so that there should be this momentum and this just urge to create more systems of this self-giving. Yeah, precisely. And when, in Labor McSerson's, when he gives that, that very devastating charge that the market should be modeled off of the family and not the family off of the market. You know, that's yeah, yeah. one of these things that just turns our society on its head. And it's like, I don't even know how that would work, you know? And so, but you know, the charge is clear that that is, that is what we have uh, been tasked with specifically as the laity to create new financial systems, to create new economic patterns by which the kingdom actually rains down here on earth. Yeah. So thank you for all that you do at New Polity. Um, but concerning the Corban thing you just said, mm -hmm. um, St. Alphonsus talks about how you can't enter religious life if your parents are really in need. Yeah. You have to take care of them before you do that. But yeah. like you said, there's there's really it's more general. So you really need to look at the particular situation you're in. But um, I wanted to um, the, the last point I wanted to raise before we get more into the liberalism was the traditional family. This is that this podcast came out of a conversation I was having with Dr. Mom and some others about um, the, the debate that y'all had. Mm -hmm. um, and we were talking about how do we how do we really take care of our parents? And um, it, may, it made us talk about the traditional family, which is much bigger than the nuclear family. It, the nuclear family is really a corruption that come out, came out of the first industrial revolution. Uh, where the tr the family became isolated from its greater community, whether that's mm. the extended family and the ex the ethnic and religious community built around that, and it doesn't seem as difficult to take care of aging parents if they live next door or live in your house or and you have all your cousins and aunts and uncles all together right here, right? You know. So, any comments on the uh, traditional family before we get into liber liberalism's effects? Yeah, you know what? It, it, getting there's this pattern of what happened in paganism was often overturned in Christianity. And now that we are becoming post-Christian pagans again, uh, we're starting to see the, the similar uh, 
trends arise. And, and the family and the desolation of the family is certainly one of them. I mean, if you know your Latin or you know your Greek, you know that there's no word for family in either language. And I mean, you have oikos, you have familia, but they don't really refer to the family in the way that, that we refer to it today. I mean, oftentimes you speak about your family in Latin, the familia, but that does not include your wife and that does not include your children. That's mainly your slaves. It's mainly your property. And certainly Greek and oikos has that same meaning. It's primarily about things that you own and things that you have authority over. Christianity in a sense, discovered the family. And, and opposed to, again, the, the ranks of authority of who has power over whom, the Christian discovers these relations of love which govern the authority, that govern the power of one person over another. So in a sense, my wife has an extreme amount of power over me because I love her. And and I don't have an extreme amount of power over her because the law tells me that I do. You know, these are some of these massive tectonic shifts that, that happen with the advent of Christianity. And so, of course, when we uh, when we talk about the, the, the world as being uh, sanctified and, and the church is, is opening up her doors, allowing all of us to call one another brother and sister, that that is something that, again, emerges uniquely from this core of charity that emanates out into the entire world. So naturally, that would be broken down the further that we get away from the church, the further we get away from our beloved Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we when we look at kind of the modern demands of the family it's, it's also quite tr trying to see that it's not just that we have some obligation to our elderly parents. Of course we do. And of course that's priority. But how many others do we have uh, you know, duty towards? We are our brother's keeper after all. Yeah. So um, we have this traditional family. That, that's a great point about the Greek and Latin. I actually never knew that, even though I, I was trained in Greek and Latin. Um <laughs> That's great. Um, you know, I was chatting about this with one of my friends. He's a he's a classics professor, and he didn't. He's like, yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah? I never thought about that before. You know, so that was not my discovery. That's M.I. Finley there. So yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, it, you do see. Um, I mean, there is a traditional family that has grown in smaller, kind of by natural law and natural inclination, smaller um, villages and and tribes and stuff like that, but. Christianity is what revolutionizes the relationship between man and woman and man mm -hmm. to his children and all of this. Um, so li liberalism comes along and starts to break this down first by moving the traditional family out, extracting it for various reasons out of its its context in Christendom, in the yeah. villages and et cetera, uh, transplanting it into the urban environment, putting it in the yeah. factory uh, all sorts of economic breakdown, separating man and women, women from uh, in their economic context so that they're working separately. The children are working separately. The whole family is divided against each other. Yeah. Um, and there's been this fight ever since to reclaim something to the family, reclaim something to the traditional family. Um, so we have, as you say, there's all these sort of structures that come about to ameliorate this situation. Some of them well-intentioned, some not. Um, what are the different ways that, uh, you see liberalism's effect on this traditional structure? We've got like, before we even get to the 401k, which is really recent, yeah. um, 
there's like the welfare state and things like that. What are your what are your thoughts on the liberal effect on traditional family? Yeah, uh, it's devastating. So liberalism, it just kind of as starters, is an ideology that teaches that man is fundamentally an individual, that he's not fundamentally a social creature, and he and he's stripped away from uh, others as as a kind of as a starting place, and so any society that develops is alien to his fundamental nature. This is kind of, you know, liberalism 101. It's one of the, the, the starting blocks of this uh, modern ideology. And so, it, so it, it attacks the family head on as a result. Uh, you know, one of the, the things that you um, find a lot repeated in the medieval Catholic tradition from guys like St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Bonaventure, is that money or possessions take the place for where love lacks, which is a really important comment because in the case of, of, of love, with it, which is, of course, an interchangeable term with friendship, there is no possession. As, as Augustine would, would say, or did say, rather, that uh, where you have friends, you have common possession. Aristotle says this as well. St. Thomas repeats it. Uh, St. Bonaventure talks about the um, mode of possession being uh, diametrically opposed to the mode of charity. And so, of course, this doesn't, I, I, I hope that just as a prefatory note, this doesn't seem to condemn all uses of money. But if it is true that liberalism begins to celebrate the individual over the family of this isolated automaton rather than the uh, the social creature, that there are going, there needs to be some sort of means by which he relates with others or she relates with others uh, in a way that does not fall into the mode of charity. And so the mode of possession, the mode of exchange seems to be uh, an easy alternative. And and I think it's for that reason why um, you've seen our liberalized economy be so ubiquitous with money. It's a completely monetized economy. And of course, this comes up very frequently uh, all throughout the, the social encyclicals and its condemnation of liberalism. I guess we should probably say that that liberalism has yeah. is is often in, uh, condemned by the church. So yeah. this is this is not a um, this is not a, a kind of a tangential teaching of of Holy Mother Church. It is it is smack dab in the middle of what she's been teaching us for the last 150 years. Yes, uh, unfortunately, there are uh, voices that are raised that liberalism is not a sin per se. But as you said, just the ideology right there defined in and of itself is heretical right there um but uh we so we one of the things that i think one of the big factors which we'll get right into our discussion of the 401k and speculation Mm -hmm. is um what the new testament does when it says that the love of money is idolatry uh this subtle form of idolatry and this runs through all of the history of christendom where there's this just this assumption that money corrupts and money's not evil like you said yeah get to use money but the love of money is a corrupting influence and it can be idolatrous um so it it seems to me that this is one of the big factors in liberalism where where it this this love of money is no longer a danger 
it's it could be a good thing actually it could help <laughs> help the common good maybe and it seems like that's one of the crucial factors can you speak to that at all dr mom yeah yeah th thanks i think it's a really important question when um i'll, I'll just try and be brief on on this but when i was starting my doctoral work i was really captivated with this question of money because you read in the bible and especially in the gospels there's very few nice things said about money and then i started to kind of look through the tradition and the the condemnation of money gets even more and more severe the further i kind of looked into it like saint jerome saying that money was made to be trod underfoot that saint john chrysostom saying let us despise money often in his sermons and he actually ended up forbidding anybody to bring money into his church i mean can you imagine a priest wow. doing that today i mean they're so everybody's so desperate they get funds back into the church and john <laughs> chrysostom says no there's something more important going on here uh saint uh uh, Pope St. Leo the Great said that it's hard to avoid sin between buying and selling. And and St. Basil said, you know, who is the father of lies? Who is the father of perjury? Is it not money? Um, I mean, I could keep going off on, on a list, but it was like, man, they're not really talking about the love of money. They're talking about money. You know, like, could that be, actually be right? And, and a couple of things really helped me along the, the way of trying to understand this. And I, I, you know, I come at this from a very, uh, I come at this from a very uh, normal or had come at this from a very normal, very liberal um, background. So all of this was explosive in my mind. I was not ready to receive any of these teachings. I'll just say that. And um. But one thing that was really helpful was actually going back and looking at that Greco-Roman context in which money really was praised, that it was not just welcomed in uh, in the temple, it was required to do anything within the sacri sacrificial worlds of the Greeks and the Romans, that that you know Moneta, the, the goddess that watched over the funds of the bank was the goddess of war and she was the source of peace and moneta of course is the where we get our word for money because she was the goddess of money she was the goddess of war which fueled the roman army which was the source of the pax romana so she money is the princess of peace and so that when when St. Paul then says that the love of money is the root of all evil, he is just dropping political dynamite in the midst of this pagan world that Christianity entered. And so when, when I was kind of looking further into like, well, okay, you get a lot of these profound statements and very powerful statements, but what's the meaning behind it? What's the justification behind it? And, and St. Thomas Aquinas is really helpful on this. He actually does say that money by its very nature hinders charity by distracting the mind. Now, he doesn't say that money is inherently evil, but he says money, once it's by its very nature, has this tendency to direct us off a new path. And, and before you think of this, the saint is crazy, um, it might be worth saying that all technologies begin to change the pattern and order of our lives in some way. The clock did in in, in immeasurable ways, actually, um, by the way in which we could begin to tell time and direct certain aspects of the day. 
and we can measure productivity within it. I mean, it absolutely transformed the economy. Trains enabled families to live far away from one another in a way that that never really happened throughout the Renaissance or Middle Ages. Uh, we could go down a list. When you drop a new technology in a society, it begins to change the society as a whole. And 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 money is a technology, just like any of these. And so it starts to change the pattern of a society. So what's the real problem with, with money? Well, St. Thomas, again, like helps us out with that answer. And he says, of course, money takes a place for where love lacks. But sometimes that's, of course, necessary. But what happens when we've made money ubiquitous? And commenting on that great line from 1 Timothy, he, he says that the problem with money is not that we have set it as our last end. That's not what St. Paul is saying. When, when he says that the love of money is the root of all evil, that we just want money for money's sake. It's rather that we default to using it when we shouldn't. And we've actually pushed aside the sacramental union of love between one another and replaced it with money. Once we've monetized our, our way out of the ability of self-gift, you know, as John Paul II later put it, we've actually made uh, a we've made uh, we, we've we've created a wall in which to have charity reign so i i think that's um a little bit more of the the nuance that you find in in the tradition that's uh, knocked me off my chair many times in reading it and it's taken me some years to kind of come to grips with but <laughs> well that, that, that's yeah. great so that yeah. we have in liberalism and the liberal disorder we have a, an entire society that is ruled by money everything's monetized and all of these different helps that charity would provide in this family structure or just in neighborliness are now monetized yeah. products and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, it seems now looking into the 401k and the stock exchange, it seems that the, the, the central aspect of your argument is mm -hmm. that speculation is a sin, right? And so it seems, and speculation seems to be one of the ways that money corrupts and the love of money by monetizing and greed. Um, so how how can we define speculation? More, it's buying low, selling high, seeking a profit for the sake of the profit, not for the sake of the common good, yeah. not putting any labor into the into the and this, this sort of thing was happening before the sort of stock exchange totally happened but can you speak to that fundamental principle of speculation yeah sure let me I, i'm not going to uh just so people will trust us on this i know i'm just going to read paul samuel's uh definition of speculation if you don't know him he was uh, a 20th century economist nobel laureate uh his his textbook on economics was uh, the most widely used uh, economic textbook in the world. Um, and he defines speculation like this. Speculation involves the buying and selling of assets or commodities with the purpose of making profits from the fluctuations in prices. Generally, a speculator buys an asset with an eye to selling it later for a profit when the price has risen. Speculators are not interested in using the product or making something with it. Rather, they make a profit from price changes. So that's speculation. Samuelson was not against it. 
you know, okay. I should just kind of make that as, as a preface. So this is not an antagonistic argument. This is this is a guy that's uh, loves the 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 capitalized um, global market. Okay, and, and so that's his understanding of it. And, and and have I have I touched on the main points as yeah. well, like with what you just said? Because yeah. Uh, it, it, maybe we could flesh this out just a little bit if if any of the viewers or listeners didn't do their homework. But <laughs> if you didn't do your homework, go read the whole treatment. Um, because it seems that if you're just taking advantage of a price change, you're not actually helping anybody but yourself, basically. Right. Mm -hmm. You're just saying, oh, I got hey, the price changed. I can actually make more money. That's great. So now I've got money in the bank. But no one was helped but me. There's mm -hmm. no common good affected. Is that the, the the gist of it basically. totally yeah i think you nailed it so just to, to kind of flesh it out a little bit um the way in which we can justly put a price on something is if what we've produced is really helpful to somebody else so if i'm i'm a carpenter and somebody's asked me to make them a shed and i charge them two thousand bucks for the shed or something uh it's because i've done some work i've done some real work and it, metaphysically speaking <laughs> that shed is mine because I did it, but then we make a just exchange and it's a win-win. You know, I needed money to then be able to provide for my family. They needed a shed and, and I did that work for them. But in this case, there's no product produced. There's actually a demand that's uh, intensified by my taking something out of the market, holding it until something is produced. It's well, the way that I summarize it is wealth without work. It's getting without giving. And that's a, a, you know, just a kind of a quick summary. So it's not a, it's not a full argument, but I think it starts to capture a, what, what the problem that the tradition has with it. Um, you know, I'm going to turn it around and, and grab John Paul II's, uh, you know, his condemnation on, of, of speculation as well, because this is what he does is really important in Centesimus Honus. Um, and then it's later taken up by Benedict the the 16th in um, Caritas and Veritate. But um, but what John Paul II does is really take a phenomenon that's happening throughout history of people buying things, holding it, and then selling it later for a price. Um, and he says, you know, this has become very common within our liberalized economy um, today. And um, in, in his lines... Um, are very clear that he is specifically teaching about this problem and the, and the way in um, or this phenomenon and he and he defines it in two ways. Um, one is by the words that he uses. He he uses the, the phrase of of quaestibus um, faciendus, which is actually a technical term that comes up in legal manuals in the Middle Ages to speak about this phenomenon of buying, holding, and selling later. Middle Ages, they were not. Uh, always, they would use it sometimes for usury as well. So it's not just what we now call speculation, but it was it was used in uh, a multitude of ways to speak about financial sins. Um, and then the second thing, second way in which he uh, defines it or speaks about, um, or make sure that we know what we're talking about is because he gives a definition that's very close to what Samuelson. Um, himself, what what he does, and so I'll just read that briefly. Um, should, we should have tossed this in your in your PowerPoint. I'm sorry that I didn't think to oh, do oh, that good. earlier. You bring it up in the debate with Trent Horn, I think. 
Okay, great. Yeah. So this is the ownership of the means of production, whether in industry or, or agriculture, is just and legitimate if it serves useful work. It, the ownership of the means of production, becomes illegitimate, however, when it is not used or when it serves to impede the work of others in an effort to gain a profit, which is not the result of the overall expansion of work and the wealth of society, but rather is the result of speculation or the breaking of solidarity among working people. And he finishes off like this. The ownership of this kind has no justification and represents an abuse in the sight of God and of man. So that's 43 in Centesimus Annus. So I, you know, just in case we're thinking that the there's uh, different terms that are being used here, it's, it's pretty clear that the, the Pope is, um, what the Pope is referring to through those definitions. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, and I, I, let me just want to get a little bit of what is the stock exchange? Cause these are oh, it's getting into things that I don't even quite understand. I, a lot of the stuff you wrote in your article was over my head, but you talk about how, uh, the Protestants create the modern stock exchange and the Dutch Republic and all this. Mm -hmm. And, but you talk about how that very thing is happening in the stock exchange. Cause it's basically, it's not really it's like two or three steps removed from the actual production of the company. It's like mm -hmm. people who are buying and selling stuff on the side that doesn't actually directly affect what's going on with the products and, right. and everything with the business. Right, right. Um, but we were texting earlier about it seems that popular investment in the stock exchange, did that really start to, to become really popular in the 1920s after the First World War? leading to the Great Depression? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, that is kind of the famous rise of the stock market, of, of, of general speculation, um, popular pop, popular spe speculation. But the time where it really becomes to, to dominate America is once, we've once we got rid of pension plans as the default mode of uh, preparation for retirement and families as a default mode of retirements and created 401ks. That's the thing that really got a lot of us into the market. Okay. So the 401k is, if people don't know, understand how that works, and I don't even understand all the specifics here, but <laughs> basically like it's, it's, you put money in and a, a company will take that money and then they'll invest in the stock market. And then the, they're basically betting on the what does it really mean to invest in the stock market? It's basically betting on the price changes of stocks, right? That's right. Yeah, that, that is fundamentally how it works. So you'll buy a share of ownership in a company. So say it's it's um, it's George's Brewery, you know, which is a corporate scale, and I'm going to buy one one hundredth of of the company. Um, when I buy that one share of of George's Brewery or whatever I said, uh, I am not that money does not go to George. It does not go immediately to the brewer, it, I buy it from another owner who uh, then takes the money and does whatever he wants with it. When I want to sell that, I will not sell it to back to the brewery. I will sell it to somebody else. This is what's called the secondary market. Um, it's, I think a fair analogy to this is if you think about a scalper at a football game or a baseball game, he goes off, he buys the ticket from the ticket booth. So at one point there was money given to the stadium and then he goes off and he sells it uh, to somebody on the street. It, but now imagine that that person on the street turns around and sells it to somebody else. And then he sells it to somebody else and he sells it to somebody else and nobody ends up ever going to the game <laughs> <laughs> that, that 
that the ticket just keeps circulating around and around. That's what's happening in the modern stock mar stock market. That's just what's happening in this. That's what's always happened in the stock market. So, I mean, if you use that analogy, that seems clear enough that mm -hmm. it's not producing uh, anything for the common good. It's not producing any products and yeah. it is encouraging greed and the love of money and a, a sinful speculation. Um, so I, it seems to me that the general immorality of the stock market or the 401k seems clear to me. However, I, I want to field a few objections Let's to you. Let's do it. Yeah, no, I think this is important. Yeah. Um, which I've, uh, and some of these overlap with what Mr. Horn was saying to you. Uh, and all, all due respect to Mr. Horn, of course, we respect you and we appreciate your work, of course. Absolutely. Uh, but And some of these. So the first one I thought that Horn brought up, um, which is what is not condemned by the magisterium is licit. It, to a to a certain degree, if we're talking about something that's uh, debatable, gray issue, that's a new thing that that came up as you know, four hundred one k is a new thing, um, and the stock exchange has been going on for decades and decades and generations. Mm -hmm. And I looked up Dominic Prumer's Manuale Theologiae Moralis. I found it in this this citation here on the screen. He does say that. Speculation on the stock exchange. This is the year 1960, so this is his yeah. context. Yeah, but yeah. he's you know one of the best moralists out there, looking at all this stuff after the Great Depression and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he says that speculation on the stock exchange per se is is licit. It can be licit because the same morality which would govern gaming and betting could be. And this is what Mr. Horn points out. Um, yeah. But he does say that a certain form of the contract, which he calls a differential contract, uh, which seems to be more speculative, um, which is where you're 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 playing the playing the the prices and whatnot, um, is can be accidentally sinful and tends toward greed. So he would he would that's recommended to avoid, mm -hmm. even though it's not intrinsically evil, but it, it does tend towards evil. So. What is your response to the the magisterial argument that it's not hasn't been condemned, therefore we shouldn't burden people's consciences yeah. beyond what is uh, condemned? Yeah, great. It's a really good question. I want to make sure though, because those were two different arguments in there. So one is that the magisterium has not explicitly condemned the stock market, and then the second uh, objection is the is the gambling objection. It's like it's just like gambling, and so the same moral principles are should be applied. Okay, so I want to take those as two different arguments, and, and I will address them both. Um, so in terms of the magisterium, what's really important to realize here is that the, the magisterium very rarely condemns specific actions. They offer us principles by which we are going to evaluate things happening in our own life. So, for instance, they don't say, you can't steal TVs from Target. They say thou shall not steal. It's for us then to go and to apply these principles into our life and to make a, uh, a good decision off of them. Now, you could say something like, well, do they ever give you any signs or, or you know, that you're, that we're interpreting this correctly? And I think, I think they do. Um, a lot of people bring up like the, for instance, the, uh, the, the, the um, guidelines for moral investing by the USCCB, which of course is not the magisterium, but is still something that we should consider. Um, not once does it mention the stock market. It just talks about following a market rate. You know, it never talks about shareholding. 
In fact, when when um, Pope Benedict discusses shareholding in Caritas and Veritate, he condemns it in place of stakeholding. So I th so right from the get go, that I think Pope Benedict is the quickest and or, or is the closest that we ever get to an explicit condemnation. But there's another uh, consideration to be made as well, and that came out in July by by Pope Francis, and he is. Uh, changing the investment strategy. He creates a new um, uh, Vatican guideline uh, on how to inter or how to how the Vatican Bank should be holding its invested funds. And he changes it from public companies to private companies. And in so doing, he cites these same passages from um, John Paul II. So I think that's a pretty clear vector into the way in which we should be interpreting it. Though again, the church, there's nobody in the office at the Vatican going through and cataloging all the speculative funds for all the countries of the entire world. That's just ridiculous. And if we give up our ability to discern the good and discern what's evil and to choose one over the other, then we've just given up being human. We've just decided to be robots when it's really that the will is the seat of love and that is ultimately what God wants. And so we need to be making these, these decisions ourselves to take the principles that the church has revealed to us and to apply them in our own life. So I think that's that's my argument against the first objection. And, and I think that that is something that really has uh, a refocus on um, what, it, what moral theology is for the laity. Now, the second objection is a really important one too. Um, and I would say first a couple of things that Prumer is not the magisterium. He's a very good moral theologian, but there were some really important declarations made after him. Uh, of course, the, the, John Paul II writes after him. Benedict XVI writes after him. Things that we've seen just this last summer comes after him. So, so there are uh, more authoritative and later things that we should give greater ear to. So I'd say that is kind of part one of the of the response. Uh, the second thing is that um, there is already a movement away from the liberalized stock market, even starting in, um, uh, in, in um, excuse me, um, Pius XI's um, uh, encyclical, um, uh, uh, goodness gracious me, uh, coming out in, in 1931, in which um, he actually has Oswald Neil Brunig um, write the first draft of it. And also, oh, you mean Quadragesimo Anno? Quadragesimo Anno. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, Octagesimo Anno kept coming to mind. That's that's 40 years too much. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, and Oswald Neil Brunig um, was picked by Pius XI to write um, the first draft of that encyclical. And what did, what was his major book and why he picked him? What was his dissertation in which he wrote against the stock market? So there's already some and, and the arguments that I've been sharing here and speculation and such. So I, I think there's already a, a large, there was already a tradition beforehand that maybe Prumer may have been missing. Um, but, and there were certainly authoritative things coming up over afterwards, but let's take his argument seriously. What are the actual guidelines that we have for uh, gambling? And, and I really do think that the modern catechism is pretty good on this, that it never uses the term gambling. It's called games of chance. And, and, I, and I really think that that gives us the real thrust of what gambling 
should be. It's when you you're with your buddies at poker night. You know, it's 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 the uh, parish uh, raffle or something like that. We're really who's winning is everybody, even if you lose a few bucks, because you're there for fun. You're they're there to get some extra money to the parish. Um, you're not there out for financial gain. And, and, you know, in the, in the catechism specifically says that once you have suffered some financial loss, that is a telltale sign that you're, you're not doing these games of chance, right? Now, what does it come when you have industrialized those quote unquote games of chance? Well, it means that even if you're winning, you are setting the occasion for somebody else to lose. Like you've created that by the demand that you've set. And so when, what do you call industrialized gambling? Or where do you find that? You find that in Las Vegas, which I believe is called the city of sin. You know, And so we're trying to make a parallel over to the stock market. If we're getting into an industrialized speculation, we call that the stock market. Right. Uh, and I mean, what, what you say, it's reasonable uh, because modern finance is so technical and there's so yeah. many different uh, it, magisterium just doesn't have time to review every single different speculative transaction and all sorts of things like the the usury condemnation was in 1745 totally because there was new there was new contracts then um sure. so there is a certain and i get that too um there is a certain like the lay, lay people need to take the principles and apply them in our context as lay people which is mm -hmm. the economic sphere um, here's another objection. And I want to get let's, into, before okay. you move on to that next objection, I really would like push back on any of these arguments. You know, I'm not here to win an argument. I'm here to kind of find the truth. And so if you have any objections to those, let's, let's flesh them out. Or if you don't think what I said is reasonable, let's flesh it out. Well, I think if we get into the, this next objection goes into where I think the magisterium question would go to, because okay. it seems that your um so i'm reading here from page 40 on your article okay and you say this can it be argued that buying stocks is justified if one is seeking an increase of funds so as to pay for a home retirement or even say create an endowment for a parish but the ends do not justify the means good intentions cannot justify bad actions so right. it seems like you're implying and it was further implied in the article by the individual against tread horn that it seems like investing in the stock market is intrinsically evil. Sure. Would you, would you claim that it is intrinsically evil? Because I think if you're, I don't think that you have proved that. And I think it would be a lot sure. harder to prove that uh, without a condemnation from the magistrate. Uh, sure. Fair, fair enough. Um, intrinsically evil is a really important term um, in moral theology. It means that something is going against the natural order of creation. So, for instance, killing is intrinsically evil. Amputation is intrinsically evil. But you could apply to a different principle in some case in which to make it even a morally right act. So you could consider that's the whole tradition on just war. Um, in the case of amputation, you could apply to the principle of totality in which you have to consider the overall health of the body. But in itself, those actions are intrinsically evil. They're against the natural order of creation. They're going against life. They're going against totality in and of themselves. Um, so, 
so I, that does not, so I just want to make sure that that's clear because something that is intrinsically evil does not necessarily mean you can never do it. Does that make sense? Well, I think that in given a particular circumstance and definition of an act, it's always, it's always everywhere and always intrinsically evil given this definition. So if you, if you slay a man unjustly, that's intrinsically evil. And every time every that's slaying, you know, thou shalt not slay. If mm -hmm. we define it differently, it's always evil in this case. Um, but if we talk about just war, that's not slain because I guess the way that we're defining the intrinsic it is evil always is not killing an individual. That in and of itself is not intrinsically evil. It's, it has it's, to be defined according to the context. So, so this is this is a really important distinction, and this is one of those things that. Um, brings you to the, it is kind of moral theology 101 but it is something that sets you above all the other kind of classic popular you know catholic moral theologians out there is that it's it's a consideration of the act itself what does the very act regardless of circumstance do in terms of killing now it takes life that is something that is intrinsically disordered it only becomes ordered within disorder this is ver this is this is kind of this is a one-on-one argument here so i'm not giving you anything that's that's crazy from the from from the from the tradition or whatever or tra crazy external to the tradition this is this is this is moral theology straight down main street um we so within the consideration of intrinsically wrong uh, a intrinsically wrong act, there could be occasions in which it is okay. Again, just war, saving yourself from gangrene, you know, something, something like that. Those are occasions in which an intrinsically wrong act becomes ordered because you have a larger scenario of disorder. And so that's my argument with speculation too, is that you could potentially have occasions in which it is permissible, but in and of itself, it is, as John Paul II says, an abomination before man and God. So you're, what you're saying is, um, participate. Like, so if we if we grant that the stock market, speculation on the stock market is intrinsically evil in and of itself, consider it without any context. You are conceding that, given such some grave cause, one could speculate on the stock market for some justified reason. I wouldn't right. even concede that. I would just say that that would ha that would have to go forward because we haven't even gotten further in the argument. Yeah, I mean, I I, I wouldn't say that's a concession to something that else that I've argued. I'd say, yeah, that that's implied in what I've argued. Okay, perhaps, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I I think that that so um, no 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 finding that occasion is maybe pretty tough. So I mean, could yeah. could you say, well, here we are with we're in this liberal disorder. Sure. I don't have a traditional family structure. I don't have this. I don't have that. I don't have any other good means of providing for, I don't have any children, for example, or something like, I don't know, whatever, yeah. whatever the grave cause is. Uh, but I can think of many given our liberal disorder. Would you say having a 401k in those cases, like I go to the priest and ask, can I have a 401k? Would you give me permission to have a 401k, even though it's speculation because of my situation? Would you, would you, can you conceive of any situations that would, you would think you would allow it? What do you sure. think? Sure. Yeah. I've seen, I've, you know, there's been a number of people that have kind of come up to me after talk saying, you know, I'm, 
I'm uh, 63 years old. You know, I've, I've never studied Catholic social teaching. I'm new to the faith. I never got married. I don't have any kids. Um, you know, should I cash out my 401k right now? And, and in those cases, again, I'm not a pastor. I'm a happy academic, you know? And so, so these are, uh, really, as you said, is best served between here are the principles that the church is teaching and how do you apply them well in your life? You know, you should go off and do that. And I think that that might be an occasion. But again, I don't have any pastoral authority to say. Um, and even in those situations, there are so many more details to explore and why um, the pastoral word is so important because it is the only vantage by which a situation becomes totally personal. You know, I'm, I'm right. not going to have that vantage for people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think this is reason why I, I don't disagree with you, Dr. Imam. Um, and for viewers and listeners, this is, I think a good method for mm -hmm. us to consider these different moral principles and then when in doubt, ask your priest, do what he says. So, <laughs> Um, yeah, let's yeah. talk about, uh, I, I mean, even if, um, I mean, even if people don't buy all of your arguments, I think that we can all agree that our, our society is ruled by money. We should build more family and more you know, yeah. structures. So what kinds of alternatives can we build up? The first one, obviously we've already talked about the traditional family. Um, can you talk to alternatives? How do we build a Catholic retirement without a 401k? Yeah, that's, that's great. So, um, Ted Bennett was really the guy that discovered how to use the 401k exception in the way that we popularly do today. And he's a very fascinating guy. He was, uh, you know, obviously a very um, successful accountant to have been able to discover these things and then to have popularized it as, as he did. But he was also a devout Protestant guy. He said that the way in which business was tending at the time was uh, so grievous where employers were trying to squeeze out every dollar they could from their employees that he nearly quit. And that he thought that the you know mode by which a 401k could be used might just save a bit of time in that sequencing. Um, but even still, when he uh, introduced it to the corporations, they started to be, call it a, a salary reduction plan. And that is a, kind of a devastating and ominous uh, title to, to call these things. Uh, and today, you know, he gets a lot of praise for, for what he did. And, and he now thinks that the whole financial system, in large part, thanks to the popularity of the 401k, has become a monster. Um, and he'd like to shut it down. He, he says, he, he was once asked, you know, by a very like, you know, bright eyed interviewer is like, man, I don't know what we would have done prior to, to the 401k. Like you saved us. And he snaps back and he says that nobody even thought about retirement prior to this. You know, you parents would just live with their kids. And then he, he, he finishes off with this terrifying line that, that the family is not today what it once was, you know? And, and we think so much about um, Our Lady of Fatima rightly, and we think about the, uh, the destruction of the family, and our mind goes to the pill and to abortion, but our minds don't also go to our modern financial systems and the 401ks, even when the guy who invented it admits readily that 
that system has helped to break down the family. So the first thing that we can do is for young guys like you and me is to raise up our kids in a way that they know to expect to take care of us and to turn to our parents simultaneously and say, don't you dare think about a nursing home. I want you to move in with me. You know, where we are taking Christ's uh, condemnation of the Pharisees and their laws of Korban seriously. We're taking that to heart and we're, we're falling in love with our parents again. You know, I think so often we, um, we do believe that liberal myth, that we are just individuals. And yet when we first came into existence, we came into existence in another person. You know, if we were just left alone by ourselves, we would have died. You know, at the beginning of our life, we need to be taken care of by others. At the end of our life, we will need to be taken care of by others. In the middle, it is our job to take care of others, both younger and older. And so I think to demonstrate this to our parents, we have to live it. Or excuse me, if we have to, if we have to demonstrate this to our children, we do that by taking care of our own parents and actually trying to, to live out the gospel. Well, I just really don't think that we're going to be able to get away from real personal relationships rather than mechanized institutions. Yeah, I, I, the, you just meditate on the scriptures regarding parents. I mean, he who curses his mother and father, let him die the death. Ugh. And uh, when you think, when you really sit around and think about all the things, especially if you become a parent, like uh, young fathers like ourselves, uh, you realize how much your parents really did do for you. And totally, I never yeah. really you can never possibly repay the debt to them um, that they gave to you, except by taking care of them when they're older and needy as much as you can, giving that example to your, your children. Um, but you might not have any children or your children may lose the faith, God forbid, or they rebel against this whole system. They don't want to have this yeah. or whatever. Um, what are some alternative methods to have uh, you know, would you would you recommend like, uh, you know, the other fact that your your money is just losing value every year because of inflation? Yeah. Would you yeah. be a would you recommend like a fixed rate account, checking account gets three percent a year or something like that to combat inflation? Just so you have money. What are your thoughts on just money savings? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I um, I do want to just hit back up on like, what if your kids just rebel and, and go yeah. off? And and I really don't want to um, to give my my kids the alternative of rebelling. You know, we should never plan as if they'll f fail, because then we are setting the occasion for them to do that. Mm. You know, it has That's to be. Point. We need to set the occasion for virtue to make it easy to say yes to the good. And so I, I don't think that um, within our planning, we should do something else that is going to make us feel like my real security, my default plan is actually in the idolatrous methods of liberalism. Hmm. Don't worry. I, I'm, I'm primarily banking on God, but the Astaroth polls are pretty effective, actually, at the end of the day. You know, that's that's really what we're, we're trying to say as it pertains to our kids leaving, you know. So I, I so I just want to kind of toss that out there first is and, and, and even you see that um, that the sin of envy and the sins of enmity 
perpetuate and they multiply. As soon as Cain kills Abel, he assumes that somebody else is going to kill him. But once, and we've probably a number of us have tasted this in our life before, that so once we don't treat somebody uh, as just an exchangeable good and keep them at arm's distance, we start to see, wow, there's a real chance that love could define the way that we live. And, and of course, this has happened for centuries. Something that in, was created in, in the 1980s or popularized in the 1980s is not necessary for human life. You know, God already put a mechanism in place and he called it parents and he called it children. You know, they take care of us when we're down and out. So falling and leaning into his methods are really the thing that we are called to do. Um, now, as it pertains to what are some ways of, of fighting against the sins of debasement that our government is, is engaged in right now, of devaluing our currency that, that hopefully is hard-earned and won, uh, then, I, you know, I'd say that another financial system is probably not the alternative <laughs> and because they still have claims over it. And even if you're making three and a half, four percent, you're still losing next to the overall debasement rate. Um, you know, there's these crazy and delusional graphs that the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis has, puts out saying that, look, people are actually the median household income is out is beating inflation, you know, over time. And that is just insane. It's not. And we all know it's not. CPI is not a real, a true index. Has things like rat poisoning on there, but not houses. Uh, but even beyond that, rat poisoning being extremely expensive during during um, wars, um, especially in the 40s. Um, but you also have this, um, this, this reality that most people's net worth is negative today. 80% of people. I, I mean, these are just fudged stats by the government to say how things are actually going. Um, and more and more people are living on two incomes, whereas, you know, once upon a time, it, dad was the one that was off the work and mom was doing the harder work at home, you know? And so, you know, there's, I, I don't really believe that our solution and any stability is going to be by manipulating the structures that be, because we are more than anything being manipulated by them. And so there's going to be, a, you know, kind of a reality like what we're, what we saw in the early church where Christians are having to move um, closer to one another, that we are probably going to have to move to cheaper places where relations can be more real, where we are dealing with things that are more real. You know, Christ prevents us from just having a general savings account that just gets larger and larger. He tells that very damning story about the rich fool who during a, a bumper year tears down his barns and builds bigger ones. So the solution cannot be in that if our goal is following Christ. I, the, the solutions are going to have to be, we're got to get the have real Christian community, which is not a quick, easy fix. You can't just hit a button. It takes time and it's probably going to be like what the early church had to do and that's moving somewhere else. So would you say that all things being equal, if you don't have some aggravating grave cause, we should really not be investing in any alternatives to the 401k other than the family itself? Well, I know. I sorry. I don't want to condemn investments. I, I, I hope that's clear. And if you have a chance of investing in a good Christian business that is going to dignify the labor of your neighbor, just 
how John Paul II defines investment. We can chat about that if you'd like. Uh, then you should take it. You know, this is an occasion in which this is a time in history where fewer and fewer people own the means of production. And we should. You know, ownership is too important to the Christian tradition to just let it fly by. You know, it's, it's Chesterton and, you know, make of what you will with Chesterton. He, he properly captured the problem with capitalism is that there's not enough capitalists, people that own capital, that own the means of production. I am pro this. The tradition is obviously pro this. John Paul II is clearly pro this. So if you have expendable capital to put forward in a good Christian company, then you ought, because what you're doing, what your primary goal should be, at least in that, is giving someone an opportunity to make good use of their labor. This is par this is section 36 in Centesimus Honest. That's the lodestar for Christian investment. So, so let that not be a, um, you know, let, 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 I don't think that that is um, a, a problem at all. I think that is a holy solution. Um, but what does that really mean? Is that we're, when you're investing, you're not holding money. You know, you are building something, you know, and when, if we can trade as much of our worthless paper coins and worthless shareholding uh, uh, investments into something that's really building up the kingdom of God, that's what we should be doing. We can't be in retreat mode. We have to be in fight mode. You know, we are, we are called to be crusaders who are bringing in a different kingdom. And we cannot do that passively. I'm going to do that. Uh, let me get some questions from the audience. First, I have uh, Gideon Lazar here. He says, um, can you ask your mom about Social Security? What should we do about that? Thoughts on Social Security? Uh, you know, I, probably others have a better thoughts on me than that. But as, as it pertains to all policy things, if that's what he's asking, if Gideon's asking about that, um, I just think that we need to be putting our main concentration and intellectual power, thinking about the things that we really can change. Like we just can't, you and I do not have the power to change social security policy, you know? And so, but what are the things that we really do have power over? It's, it's the things right before us. And so that's kind of the way that I, I think and, and about uh, social teaching and as a whole is that it, we really need to be thinking about the things that affect our lives. If he's asking about whether or not we should take it, uh, you know, I, I would just redirect it to something really good. You know, it's, it was, it's there and slated for us and, uh, and all the taxes that we pay. So it's, uh, it's our money after all. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, good points, of course. Um, it, there's a few people asking about investing in real estate. Mm -hmm. Um, Stockton says, um, it seems to provide a common good. If I had to, I would prefer to rent a home from an individual mom and pop as opposed to a large investment plaque. So what do you uh, think about that type of true. investment? Yeah. Yeah. F fair enough. No, I, um, I haven't found a good way of summarizing this yet, but we are living in an age in which renting is becoming more and more ubiquitous. And that is devastating because it means that we have fewer and fewer owners of things. And, and I'm not just talking about owning our own home and owning the means of production. I'm thinking about 
like actually having control over our memories. We have just outsourced all memory to Google. We have outsourced all ability to direct ourselves to have know the roads to Apple. I mean, there how many things are we just paying a, a number of dollars a month for our data plans instead of actually having control over the knowledge itself? And so I, I just think that the you know rent certainly has its place. New companies being created need it. Uh, college students need a place to stay. Uh, Short-term workers need a place to stay that's just rented. It's, but if we are perpetuating a renting society, then I'm not sure if that's actually for the common good. I would say that, that we would probably all say it's probably not, you know? And so that's my only hesitation with with real estate. Um, there was a We did a podcast on real estate at... Um, investments at New Polity. And by the end of that, I realized I, I inherited a home in, in Jerusalem where my dad's from. And, um, and I realized at the end of that, I got to sell this thing. And so I, and, so, <laughs> and you know, these are things that are actively convicting me and that I'm trying to change and repent of and stuff like that. So uh, I'm not sitting here on a high horse. I hope when people realize that when I, when I say this, these are, these are things that the tradition is, is, is radically changing my life, but you know, yeah, we're, uh, yeah, we're all trying to do our best here in a liberal yeah. disorder. Uh, Adrian, one of our guild members here at Meaning of Catholic, he says, what about 401ks that are managed by Catholic companies, I, a.k.a. Ave Maria, Knights of Columbus? And uh, apparently you do have some articles on this as well. Yes, we uh, do. If you, um, I, I wrote an article called The Case Against Blind Investing that starts to highlight some of the holdings in, in these funds. Uh we also have just the research, the raw research at newpolity.com slash research. So you can see what's being held by Ave Maria and Knights of Columbus and some other uh, Catholic funds. Um, but I would say a couple of things. First of all, is that um, all of these companies break the, the, the kind of moral guidelines that they set for themselves. And you can see that clearly demonstrated in the research that we've done. And that's just there for you. There's no... Uh, especially on that research page, it's, it's just the holdings, the weight of the holdings, um, and a description of those companies. Um, so that's first of all. Second of all, um, it's not really ownership if you're trying to get ownership, um, because those are those companies are the ones that are holding uh, the stocks for you. You're just getting a you know a certain um, speculative return based upon the performance of those holdings, but you're not really owning those stocks. Uh, and and third, and probably most importantly, is that we are called to do good with our money, not just to avoid evil. And those those mutual funds absolutely do not have the priority of cultivating the common good as their performance. They are always saying, we're trying to avoid evil. We're trying to avoid abortion. We're trying to avoid child labor. We're trying to avoid slave, avoid slave labor. It's like, all right, well, that seems like a no brainer. We should avoid all those things. But just because you're saying I'm avoiding slave labor and I'm avoiding child labor, that doesn't mean that I should invest in you. That's a completely, that's a completely different subject and a different topic altogether. But the but the Christian command to towards beneficence, towards the virtue of beneficence, of actively doing good, points us in a different direction. We can't just be looking at the median that's dividing us from where we shouldn't be shouldn't be driving. 
you know you're just inevitably going to hit the median if you're looking at it as, as you're going down the road. You need to be staring down the road towards the direction that you should be going. It's like asking also like the question of, uh, you know, a high school boyfriend asking how far can you go with your with his high school girlfriend. It's like that's just not the question that you should be asking. And if you're dating one of my daughters, I'm going to punch you in your face. You know, it's just stemming from the wrong disposition. And Christ has called us to more, so much more. Good answer. Good answer. Uh, one comment here last is um, uh, Proxima says displaced health worker here. The elder care industry already tended toward devaluing the human person and taking all of their money. Then the worldwide disease hit. And wow, <laughs> families of TBI and stroke and other patients, you can do a lot more than you think for your loved ones. Don't farm it out to the professionals. That's the uh, The elderly care industry certainly is. Uh, I mean, it's an abomination that calls to God for vengeance. I, any comments on that, Dr. Imam? Oh, no, I, I, I don't. I think those are powerful enough words, and I, and I just totally affirm them. It, this hits pretty close to home on a number of stories. So, um, uh, yeah, God bless them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Mom, thank you so much for uh, your conversation and all of your work at New Polity. Any final comments or uh, parting words on the 401k Catholic retirement? Yeah, yeah, divest. That's what I'll say. Um, but if any of this is uh, kind of scary or overwhelming, you know, I, I would say that the, what is it that we're ultimately trying to achieve? You know, and that's that's beatitude. That's that's heaven. That's eternal life with God Himself. Like everything that we're doing is just a footnote to actually trying to get there. And so, in these considerations, if any of them are scary, go to the chapel. Go pray, get on your knees and say, God, I want you above all. Let me do the things that are going to enable me to be, to have this greater intimacy with you. Don't, don't let the things of this world distract you, take you by surprise. You know, the, we need to keep our gaze on Christ. And, um, and if you're feeling overwhelmed right now, uh, just go do that explicitly right now. Well, that, that's, that is exactly what we need. There we go. I mean, um, feeling overwhelmed with there, there's so many securities that we have in the liberal disorder that uh, make us feel that make us feel better and make us pray less. Yeah. So um, that's great. So once again, everybody um, go to newpolity.com. Uh, you can also subscribe to the print magazine um, and uh, you can get on their mailing list and get all their essays. The conference is coming up soon as well as this Saturday, the St. Basil Institute. Uh, coming soon on Lay Apostolate, we're going to talk to an individual who grew up in a traditional family commune, but it broke down. And we'll talk about some of those. How, how do we, more of the practical side, how do we really restore the traditional family? Uh, primogenitor, what about that? Great one. We'll talk uh, Thomas Stork's latest book, that's all coming up soon. Uh, you can join the Meaning of Catholic Guild at meaningofcatholic.com slash register. And next week, we have our, our St. Saint Di Joseph Dialogo series, which is more our theological uh, dialogue show. We'll have Dr. Feingold talking about the error of limited inerrancy, talking about right. the Holy Scripture. So looking forward to that conversation. So with all that, let's end this conversation with uh, invoking Our Lady over everything, of course. and. Uh, so we'll, can you pray the second half of a Hail Mary? Uh, 